Welcome to Cult and Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends of the pod, to another episode of Cult and Classic Podcast, where we discuss a mainstream movie and a non-mainstream movie that are thematically linked, sort of. Uh, this time, we have uh, John Carpenter's fairly well-known Prince of Darkness, uh, with a fairly large cast, and then we have uh, the English thriller horror film raw meat it was released in the u.s under the title Deathline. um it is from 1972 and uh prince of darkness is from uh much later in the game 1987 i believe yep 1987 uh so we're going to talk about these two films what do they have in common donald pleasance it is uh an evening uh, of Pleasance here at Colton Classic Podcast. He's one of my favorite actors. Uh, listeners will probably recognize him most regularly as Dr. Loomis from uh, the vast majority of the early Halloween films. His voice is flipping stellar. Mystery Science Theater fans will especially recognize him as the villain in The Puma Man, which stands as one of the worst films they ever did and one of the best episodes they ever did, in my humble opinion. So. Uh, we're going to dive in first with Prince of Darkness, but of course, I need to introduce our panelists. Greg Johnson is here. How are you doing, Greg? Um, I'm just auditing this uh, particular episode, so, so don't don't count on me. Yeah. Not for credit. Pass fail next term. Yeah. Also, we have with us Mandy Longley. How are you doing, Mandy? I'm also just dialing it in this week. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got some things to talk about this episode, and I was a little so usually when I pick these films. Um, I try and pick a film uh, that's fairly well received by uh, critics or at least genre critics and another film that is lesser known and may or may not have uh, a higher uh, recognition and high reviews. In this case, both these films sit fairly high. We're talking like six to eight depending uh, out of 10, depending on, on which aggregates and which reviewers you're looking at. But I, th I was expecting something a little different. So we're gonna talk about that. And I don't know if everybody else will feel the same way. Um, but first, we're going to start with Prince of Darkness. This is a large cast film. It's John Carpenter's first uh, independently financed film um, since I think it was Escape from New York. Um, he was tired of working for studios. He wanted more control over this one. Um, so he rounded up some of his favorite people that he'd worked with. And it also is his return to horror. Uh, he did Starman before this. And then uh, right before this, he did Big Trouble in Little China which um, is of course a cult classic and, and much loved, but it didn't do well in the box office. So studios were kind of frustrated and they wanted more control into what he was gonna do. And he said, no, I'm gonna do this my own way. The plot is that this old monk dies, or this old um, rather Catholic priest dies. And uh, Donald Pleasance's character is just known as the priest in the movie. Uh, he then gets a note and a key from this guy and he discovers that this this dead priest was the last in the line of um, old-timey priests who'd been essentially hiding in at this point it's in I guess New York right is I think where they are uh, or is it California it's hard to tell they're on USC for part of the, the movie the USC campus so I can't I'm not sure if they actually even mention where they are but somewhere in America <laughs> somewhere in the basement of a church there's a locked room that leads down into these ancient catacombs and they have a big glassish pillar of um, like fluorescent churning green liquid. And it's surrounded by crucifixes and pews and all the stuff. Essentially it's the devil, but the devil is not as we find out um, from this dead priest's writings, 
what we think of as like an, an angel fallen from heaven or so. They're essentially aliens, right? The, the uh, Satan was some sort of alien and Christ was another alien who was more humanoid and he came to stop uh, Satan. And this is how they sort of contained him was in this tube. And then they said, uh, we're gonna just use the Catholic faith as basically create Catholicism to uh, hide this until humanity has science uh, capabilities that can help them dispose of or contain or control whatever the case is with this uh, mystery goo Satan. So this is just an origin movie for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? And it's right. Shredder in the vial. This is TRI, and uh, this, this is going to spill into the sewer, uh, and it's going to be a, a wrap. It's going to be amazing. Splinter is it's great. Yeah, no, it, it looks, it does look like a giant vial of the mutagen from from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and uh, the the set and everything is great. It's filmed in an abandoned warehouse. I guess it used to be used as a ballroom, um, and like I said, they film a couple of college scenes at USC. The, that's the premise of the film. The actual like plot and action involves this priest going to a college and recruiting a mythology professor uh, who's uh, he's he's well known he was in big trouble in little china as well um victor wong um he also well, i remembered him from grandpa at, in three ninjas um and the three ninjas series so maybe he's as recognized by our generation for that but uh, he plays the mythology professor who is shockingly similar to a mythology professor I had in my undergrad. And uh, he's, I guess he's, he's a mythology professor, but he's actually a physicist, right? So he's teaching advanced physics and quantum theory. And he is approached by the priest to take some of his really talented grad students and basically find out how to stop this thing from potentially breaking free and causing terror in the world in the next couple of days it seemed we don't really understand the timeline here or why this is happening at this time um, a lot of the details are foggy or left out uh, but what happens is of course the thing ends up taking over some people uh, and doing spooky things and it's really a mishmash of religious horror with the science fiction element um, and it also serves as John Carpenter's bridge and what he calls his, I think he calls his Armageddon uh, trilogy or Apocalypse trilogy, which started with the Thing remake and then Prince of Darkness and then uh, afterwards In the Mouth of Madness. So it's like the Thing is very science fiction, In the Mouth of Madness is very religious, and this is like the bridge in the center. I, I'm, I'm wondering uh, if either of you had seen this. Mandy, had you seen this film before? No, I had not seen this film before. Greg? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> Although I think I had seen the giant canister of mutagen at the Children's Museum because there's definitely a spinny, glittery, light, weird thing just like it. Yeah, we um, all, turns out yeah. uh, in grade school, we all made Satan by having two soda bottles <laughs> exactly. to make tornadoes. I'm glad they keep it little... there for future generations right. to enjoy. Exactly. I mean, they gotta keep it somewhere, I guess. Um. <laughs> so the first thing that uh, I think is important to know for, for listeners is some people have an aversion to mixing science with supernatural stuff, um, whereas others love it. And especially in this day and age where we have so many TV shows about the paranormal with people bringing out EMF detectors and homemade devices like the ovulus and things that are of, are of 
I mean, I'm a believer, but I'm also, I will call that dubious science at best. Um, this is sort of the prototype of that. You know, it's Ghostbusters-ish, like it's science, but also they don't bother explaining a lot. There are a huge number of 80s tropes in this movie, um, which is what I noticed. For example, every single sciencey thing has to be in this movie at that time. There are computers everywhere when they go to the abandoned place and set it up. There's one, one lead character, um, the female lead, who is played, and the reason I haven't really mentioned a lot of the leads is because except for Donald Pleasance and Victor Wong, everyone else is sort of a body count situation. Um, there, there are just a lot of people there. They do have some personality, but no one has a really large role versus a really small role. Um, except for maybe Jameson Parker as Brian, the male lead, and Lisa Blount as uh, Catherine, the female lead. Um, I think they, at, at one point in time, uh, the character of Catherine is mostly just there to enter differential equations in an old uh, black and green computer for a, a huge chunk of her screen time after the intro. And these equations are supposedly translated from, you know, a Latin text, which is of course pre our understanding of differential equations. Um, and I guess their thought is aliens as opposed to like, oh, Islam or like other, other pre, you know, that's not really pre-Christ, that's post-Christ, but there, there are other, you know, Aramaic things that have gotten close, we've discovered, but I thought that was interesting. They're like, no, 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 no white people were there, must be aliens. But Well, I, I love, um, as opposed to Dennis Dunn's role, which apparently is just oh. to ask, I think it's Ang Yen over and over, whether or not she's Asian. Like, I think he does it like three or four times and they're both, they're both clearly Asian. Asian. Like, yeah, I didn't understand like, that. So, so Anne Yen, I think she does a great job as Lisa, the, um, the, she's translating the, the Latin and Hebrew and, and things like that. Um, it, it was, it was really nice to, they both did a good job and to have two principal Asian actors in this film. <laughs> For like, sure. Yeah. And, and also, um, I actually think the most amazing acting job in this um, is, is uh, who is the character? There's so many characters. I'm not kidding when I'm like, no, really. It's, it's not that I'm forgetting names. It's that I couldn't possibly remember all of the names. Yeah, this was definitely an ensemble thing. And I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I, I completely um, discredited Victor Wong. So three principal Asian actors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, and I don't know... I hate to say if it's uh, if it's Robert Grasmere or I, I should know this um, or or uh, who, anyway there's a, a large black actor I think it is Grasmere oh yeah he he's, was he's phenomenal he has very mm -hmm. good screen time um, but he's one of the ones that becomes possessed and when he does I mean his his face he's just covered in sweat and he's a very large like huge tall person he has like uh, this his face exhibits this dual capacity for like um, possession and this sort of evil intent with this horrible like fear and trying to fight it off as he, mm -hmm. as his body does completely unrelated things. So his body is doing the task that he, clearly he's being forced to do, but his face has this entire story playing out on it. And it's, it's remarkable. Um, and there is that weird, <laughs> scene that I think in contemporary time does bring discomfort when he's walking up the stairs and he first gets possessed and he's like singing what is it bridge over troubled water or I can't remember what gospel-y song he's singing yeah uh, amazing grace he's singing amazing grace I think as he's walking up the stairs and I'm like man the one black actor in this is 
screeching gospel as he's coming up the stairs. But again, he plays it so well that he was a standout for me, even though he only had a handful of scenes. Well, yeah, like you said, I think unlike the other people who kind of play possession as like, I am fully possessed. Um, now I'm catatonic and I'm just kind of doing things and I'm bl- like the, the banality of evil. He plays kind of this, um, <laughs> this troubled guy who he's laughing in most of the scenes. And like you said, he's profusely sweating and um, it reminded me a lot of um, Get Out. And kind of that yeah. performance of you can see behind the eyes the abject terror. Yeah, that's a good case. He's living it in this role. Yeah. Like he's in it. That's really awesome. Um, there's also, uh, I actually, so Susan Blanchard is in this as well. She's been in many, many things. Falcon Crest. She was in They Live also. Um, and uh, lots of TV. Can I just say for Susan Blanchard, I don't know if it was her choice or her um, agent, but the fact that her IMDb picture is her from this with her face completely destroyed, like what a choice. Exactly. So, and it it might be, who knows, it might be because it's her, I think it's her um, most well-known role. And a sense of humor. Sure. It's So she's uh, kind of just the, like, She's just the mom that wanders around and checks on everyone in a couple of scenes. And then she doesn't feel well and she has a mark on her arm. And that of course is like the mark that she's been chosen by this green Satan. And so she ends up getting possessed, but as she's getting possessed and going through this weird like um, birth that doesn't result in a birth, instead it drops down and her skin starts to peel off and she has these disgusting teeth. Her face is essentially just peeled skin and raw red. And she just smiles and she kind of looks like um, a flayed Maria Bamford, like when she's with the bangs and everything, when she's this possessed thing, but she does great. Um, she, once she's possessed, she's a totally different person. She doesn't even say anything. Um, she has telekinesis and throws people around and possesses people. And then they have this cool scene, uh, the effects are something to talk about. She has this cool scene where near the end, she's trying to, I guess basically they're like, well, this is Satan or Satan's son and he's trying to bring through the actual father, Satan father, through the mirror. It's all very murky. But she goes to this mirror in the climax, and she reaches through the mirror, and there's like this demon hand reaching out to grab her hand on the other side so she can pull it through, presumably. But the way they did it is they actually used mercury that they drained from the hydraulics in a lot of their camera equipment um, to do this effect where she reaches into the mirror. And it's a fantastic effect. I, I thought that was crazy that they apparently took the hydraulic fluid out to do it. I'm, I would have imagined that you would have just gotten mercury, but I guess it is a toxic substance. I don't know how mm-hmm. uh, in 87, it, how difficult it was to get, especially that quantity. But uh, that was an interesting little factoid. The effects around the board are, I mean, they're good, but this is not the thing. This is not a super effect heavy. It's more set dressing. Um, with a few effects. Yeah, and I thought the the effects are very interesting because they're all very like practical. Yes. Like like you could see that they were simple and maybe it was like camera angles versus like expensive um, setups mm-hmm. that made it look uh, like what they wanted it to look like. Like the um, the water in the ceiling. Like yep. simple Lots but like they yeah reverse exactly. Yeah. Um, and I really actually enjoyed that. I felt that it made it like in some ways more like accessible or a suspension of disbelief because it just obviously looked very real. Yeah, it did look really good. Um, 
Going back to that, the Satan in the mirror thing, um, kind of an off topic, but did you ever see The Adventures of Mark Twain from 1985? It's like a stop motion film. I was thinking about that because I I looked up to make sure it was 1985 and this was 1987. So in Adventures of Mark Twain, there's a scene where these two kids go through a mirror and they're on like the moon or somewhere weird. And there's this weird thing in a mask and they're like, who are you? And it like whispers like I'm Satan at them. And I kind of disturbing children's film ever created by man. (laughs) And it is an absolute must watch for cold film fans. So look it up. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, just that weird little parallel of like, oh, like, like they step in this mirror and kind of this eternal darkness that Satan lives in that kind of feels like outer space. And I just like, you know, kind of that um, just coincidental parallel. Yeah, and I, uh, I mentioned before we started recording uh, the fact that this is, or this is definitely where one of those times where um, the scriptwriter, who is John Carpenter in this case, using a pseudonym, uh, said, all right. I want this to be science film and a horror film, but I'm going to do my best to tiptoe around specifics because I know that I will get it wrong. And I think for the most part, he does a good job. I mean, the because there's this really cool line Victor Wong's character has, uh, and I'm not going to get it exact, but he's talking to the priest, I think, and he says, um, or maybe he's talking to one of his students, but he's like... I think he's talking to one of his students and his students is basically like, this is bullshit. This is, this can't happen. And he goes, everything, you know, breaks all the laws of gravity and physics, you know, break down when you get small enough and then it's just ghosts and shadows. And of course he's referring to quantum physics, which if is of course even more in vogue now in like, you know, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, commercial science for, for the masses like me, who I'm not a scientist. Uh, Mandy has some, some background in engineering and much more science than I do. But quantum physics, it is true, right? Like we're learning that at, when things get small enough, they no longer behave in the way uh, that we, they normally would. And this is, it was interesting for me to, to hear some of these this little um, snippets of this kind of talk in theory in 1987, when it's just now becoming popularized uh, in, in, um, in the fun science books and things like that, uh, that, that the layperson is meant to read. And uh, he does a good job. The part where it breaks down is when you get into the use of technology. Like I was mentioning um, Blount's character just like typing away at differential equations. I don't know what that was supposed to do. I don't know why that was happening. I don't know, is that supposed to be a ritual? We really, there's so much going on and there's so many characters in this movie that it almost feels like nothing's happening because we just get, we check in for a second with a million different people and they're all essentially doing, I guess, something, but none of it is explained. Like, I don't know what these physics students are doing. Um, They're mostly just poking computers with pencils um, and listening on things, but I don't know what they're listening to. It's almost like Tron or that um, CGI show reboot where it's a bunch of people that know that computers are hot and cool and neat and we don't really know how technology works so i don't know satan yeah like and they must have had like john carpenter must have either been interested or had some sort of um people that he talked to because like uh uh the um my brain uh susan susan blanchard's character uh, at one point comes down uh while they're poking the big tank and it's like, I don't get it. What's the deal? Is it toxic? Why haven't we just taken a sample? 
And that's, mm -hmm. I think, something very real thing. They'd be like, why wouldn't we have taken a sample? Even if it's toxic, we would be able to handle this. You know what I mean? Don't drink it. Don't eat it. Don't mm -hmm. breathe it. Don't let it out. You know, don't let it out. And, and that's sort of like the kind of thing that a, a person who is a, a scientist would say and want to do. And yet it, it's never addressed again. It's like, we brought it up, so that's okay. And then we move back. Um, I also feel They're like the, they also said like they couldn't open the container. I forget where that came opens, in comparison yeah, to taking the, opens from the sample inside. inside. Yeah. Which is interesting, but it also, nobody notices that it's oozing goo on the ceiling for like ceiling, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, it's, it's this weird thing where this is what they're studying and they don't properly explain why a group of science students and scientists are not losing their shit with excitement over this because this would mm -hmm. make your career right even if you don't believe it's satan this would make your career so right. like, no one is like that no one is excited and it seems to me because there is this oppressive atmosphere it's, it's <laughs> like this movie this movie was definitely made by not nerds sure exactly, <laughs> exactly. like when i was in college and in grad school like the thing that people would talk about at parties was like um the shape of airfoils and like differential equations like what was going on like th like that is like it was like you just couldn't stop nerding out like even in social situations and maybe which, as a mechanical see, engineer in her <laughs> other life uh, right so she knows what she's yeah about. and like yeah like if you're like a nerd that's like going on to grad school to focus on specifically these kinds of things in physics like it you are gonna seriously nerd out like you're gonna be oh what is that movie um was it uh not silence of the lambs but like the other the one dragon yeah um where they have like the bug guys that they like play chess with their bugs and like that's what they're doing at like 11 o'clock at night on like a Saturday, like in the museum where they work or something like, yeah, like that is accurate. Like that is made by people that like probably are nerds. This movie felt like it was like, oh, like my brother has a computer and he like lives in my parents' basement and he just types all the time. And like, that's what nerds, like that's like all the nerd culture that they knew. And then they put this together. <laughs> like <laughs> the, what it felt the, like to me. The code in the matrix scrolling down the screen. Yeah. Like, this, is, this is engineering, yeah. right? This is, this, right. This is, this is what com computer scientists do. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Let's listen to this clip. This kind of gets a little bit to that. This is from early in the movie. This is Jameson Park playing uh, the student Brian and Lisa Blount playing the student Catherine in their meeting. And obviously, um, Jameson Parker's character, who, by the way, has an off-putting mustache in this film. I mean, he's a handsome man, uh, very fit. He looks great. And then they gave him, it's a very robust mustache. And I can't figure if it's real or, or, or applique. Um, but it's just, it, I'm like, it must have hit at like that six months in the eighties when it was required that your lead character have a mustache because otherwise <laughs> I don't understand because no one else has it. It's not, it's not appropriate, but this is them talking outside in the campus at USC. Some things aren't changed by quantum physics though. Such as? Well, for instance, every theoretical physicist I know wonders why it is that no one who looks like you ever seems to settle down in our end of the building. That's not true, and that's an extremely sexist thing to say. Confirmed sexist. I'm proud of it. Hey, I was just joking. What happened? 
you talk numbers, you get romantic, you talk people, you clam up. This to me was such, I'm not, obviously I'm a straight white male, but it's such an insane, it's the, it's, it misses the mark on every level of how to uh, address sexism in the world and in films. It's like, it's like John Carpenter said, hey, we have to make, like she has to acknowledge it, that's sexist, because that's sexist. Um, but uh, but he's really cool. So he's gonna say that, ha ha ha, yeah. And then he's gonna gaslight her and say, what are you doing? Things were getting romantic when you were talking numbers, but you can't talk about people. Is that why you don't like me? You can't talk about people, blah, blah, blah. And this is, and this is the beginning of their romance. It's the weirdest like missed thing. I just, I didn't get it. It was, it was the whole thing where I'm like, the movie, I found these two characters perhaps the most, I mean, the least approachable in the film. Um, everyone else, we get little snippets of them, even if they're cold or just normal or a uh, used car salesman type guy who just walks in because he's renting equipment and people like everyone has a little bit of I'm like, oh, these are real people. These two, I did not understand at all. Yeah, I, I just didn't get it. Yeah, I, I forgot until like the very end of the film, like, oh, right. We're supposed to be engaged in their romance when like she sacrifices herself or whatever. I'm like, oh, right. And then, and then I, then I tuned it out again immediately and forgot about it until you brought it up. Yeah, and I mean, yes, this we will do spoilers, but again, this is not the kind of movie where there's a big twist. Nothing no. <laughs> in this movie is surprising. So when you watch it, you watch it for the the actors you like. You watch it for John Carpenter's atmosphere and his his um, skilled use at limited resources to create something that looks pretty expensive for the most part. Uh, you don't you don't look for the plot because really what happens is is um, Donald Pleasance, who is top billing in this, and he's working with him because, of course, he was a fundamental part of the success of Halloween, John Carpenter's biggest success. He really doesn't even have a role here. He's there in so many scenes, and he says a couple of lines, but he does nothing. And at the end, he is the priest, and he retreats, and instead of helping everyone, he hides behind, like, a boiler, reading passages from the Bible, which he feels fairly is fairly discredited because of these revelations about what the devil and, and Christ really were. And then the, the demon lady possession is trying to pull her, her devil dad through the mirror. And at that point, that's when Lisa Blount's character runs and knocks her and the demons into the mirror. And, that, and then the priest throws an ax and crashes the mirror. Now, that's how it stopped. I guess, right, is that they both go into the mirror and then he shuts, I assume, the portal. Well, then we get this obnoxious scene at the end where they're wheeling out. Um, I guess he's injured. I don't know why they're wheeling him out, but they're wheeling out Donald Pleasant's priest character and he's like, I stopped it. I stopped it. I, and I don't know if this is Carpenter trying to like read Catholics for filth because like, it kind of feels that way, but he doesn't acknowledge it. I'm like, is he actually, is this guy actually supposed to be a hero? He's really a non-entity in this film. Um, and so I didn't... I actually rewound and like rent and rewatched like that section. I'm like, did I miss something? Did he actually do something? Like what? Oh, he's right. Nope, he nope, he didn't. I did not. Which, I mean, I yeah. guess that's something, but he says, I did it. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> you broke a mirror. The other chick mm -hmm. is in the hell realm with some interdimensional demons and like, and that's just how we leave that, I guess. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, I just didn't really know. 
I guess I didn't know what to take about it. It's like I almost would like some sort of sequel to this film just so I could feel like there was a wrap up because there is this little bit at mm-hmm. the end where I guess there's just too many elements and none of them are actually factored into the plot. It's like he had a lot of ideas and concepts and like, oh, this is going to look cool. And he's actually said in the past that this was his most visually controlled project. He had the most hands on every, it's like every single shot is exactly what I wanted and how I envisioned it. It feels that way. It doesn't feel like um, like the the really quick, you know, one take and we'll move on stuff that he does with a lot of his budget productions, like um, everything from his early work to Vampires with John Bon Jovi. Um, it doesn't feel like that, but it's almost, it's that whole style over substance. Like I think style can be substance and it can augment substance, but there's not substance here. Um, we just get a bunch of cliches with cool visuals crammed in. Um, there's also illogical scenes, which are always problematic in this, that could have been remedied without like lazy scripting. Um, and some things have to be changed when you film. I think a lot of people who haven't been involved with film don't understand this very well because you don't have to think about it. When you write a script, you don't know what the building's going to look like. You don't know where the rooms are that you're going to do these things. You don't know the logistics of how um, certain things are going to play out. So those get changed as you film. One key example is in this one, at one point in time, Dennis Dunn's ca- character is locking himself in a broom closet off of uh, like a the room where a couple of possessed women and um, Susan Blanchard's character is transforming. So he can't leave. But on the other side of like a brick wall to him is where everyone else's hold up. And so they take a, a board and start to rip open the wall to try and get to him. Well, okay, I get it. But he's yelling at them to keep going and he doesn't start to dig at all. He doesn't dig at all. He just stands there like, come on, save me. And then it gets near the end where he's like gonna, he thinks he's gonna be attacked. And he's like, hurry up. And then he starts digging. I'm like, dude, that's not logical. No one would do that. Um, and, and it's just, yet we watch it and it's for minutes. Like this, it's just, there's no way you could have watched this or had this play out uh, and not been like, it doesn't really make sense that he's not doing that. Um, and there's actually one case uh, that makes me think that there's a little more to the story with John Carpenter making this movie as to whether or not he had time or was a budget concern because it was filmed in I think about 30 days which is pretty quick for a big budget not so quick for an indie but it's 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 brief and um someone on staff had said like you know we have seven zombies basically zombies possessed people what if we had them somehow represent each one the seven deadly sins um and he's like well, we'd have to change the script. There's no, there's, we're not changing the script. And that could just be true because, you know, you're already filming. But also it makes me think that his mindset was, I am done with the script. I will do nothing more to this script. We will film what is here and we will move on. And I think that that does sort of feel that way because it's sort of, if, if people think Videodrome has sort of a, an open ending where you don't know what's going to happen and what really happened, this film is hella open. Like, there's all these needlessly elements. open needlessly yeah. yeah that's that's a good way of saying it for example um one of the weird little things that's a cool idea but it's kind of a trope with cursed objects you know in these movies is that uh people who sleep near the vial uh have the same dream and it's like a videotaped looking message of a shadowy figure in the mouth of the church 
and it's saying something in staticky voices. It's creepy, it's very they live, um, but, and it actually was filmed on videotape and then filmed with film on the screen of a television to get that effect. So that's why it looks that way and it is effective. Very techno uh, kind of vibe. That of course then, they all have that dream, which really means nothing we think. But then at the end, after uh, Lisa Blount's character has gone through the mirror, uh, then we have the scene where people have the dream and she's the figure in the doorway of the church. So it seems like there was an idea there. Like, was she the one that was somehow warning them or telling them what to do with those messages? Or is it different now because she's changed the future and that's the future? There's literally no explanation and no explanation fits well enough to be better than another one. And I, I guess I liked that personally. I kind of liked it in the same way I liked the ending of... Um... Uh, Kubrick's The Shining, where it's kind of like, I saw it as she's trapped there. And this is the film's way of telling us, you know, she wasn't warning them. She's not able to help them. It just, she is trapped in whatever this nightmare is, mm -hmm. you know, kind yeah. of a, a downer end. And that totally can be accurate. I think that the the point, and, but to me, it was too like I wanted there to be some sort of big thing because the, the dreams were such a small part and they entered so late in the game. Um, and, and they could have been really cool. They could it was, have been. It was, mm -hmm. it was, I, I, I love that payoff of like kind of the twist at the end of showing like, oh, like she's trapped in the dream or like you said, whatever it is, but mm -hmm. they just, they didn't dive into it enough. I agree. Like I would have loved, I would have loved to have people having the dreams. I would have loved to open with the dream in the movie and have people have, like some other tie because so often those are used as premonitions and things and and a big theme of the movie is that whatever's in this thing is reaching out to people like to their mind mm -hmm. and eventually of course possesses them and has telekinesis and things but like that that communication aspect is actually the coolest part of the movie to me or the concept of the movie but it really is ends up being just boiled down to um I'm a, I'm a monster. I'm an invisible version of the thing. It's going to cost a lot less money. You know, that, like spitting in each other's mouths somehow to oh, contract. How, super how soaker. Could we, how could we oh. not mention this? So yes, the way that they um, the way that they that they infect another person is they open their mouth and a a very fine stream of water like jettisons out into the other person's mouth. What are those, the uh, Dilophosaurus or whatever? Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it's, it's, so it's another practical effect. This one I think is a little less successful than the others because we've all seen or done this. It's literally a, a probably, they probably just rented a dentist thing uh, and had it. It's a tube with pressure that shoots water that's um, taped to their cheek that you can't see and it sprays next to it. So every scene of them spraying is from, um, is from a, a profile. Um, it, it's effective in the way that it's gross, it's weird, but it's a, we all know exactly what that effect is. And it's one of those that it's sort of like a spoiled effect because we've all, we can do it in our home with household items, you know, like a spray bottle or whatever. So it sort of is, even though, even if it looks exactly like what it would look like if they were jettisoning water out of their throat, it, we know it's an effect. So mm -hmm. I didn't hate it because I, at least they, at least he had some sort of weird quirk with that. But, I wanted it to be grosser, honestly. How about, like, because I mean, you know, the the whole possession via vomiting is not new, right? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. even much later, X Files did it with the you know the black, the black liquid and things. So it could have it could have been anything. Um, 
and you could have also done a low budget like there's also been the possession via kiss thing all the time make it gross have a bunch of that uh, movie slime in the mouth when they start like just you could have done that uh i don't know they also they don't use it that effectively like certain times their aim is spot on and they'll hit them from like across the room and other times like at the climax when everybody's basically bottlenecked in a, in a hallway they're they're i mean you might as well have blindfolded a five-year-old with a super soaker like that's how accurate they were um yeah and that that was the other thing the staging of the finale is just a weird i don't i wish he didn't film it in this building it could have looked like it was in this building but you essentially have like a couple of rooms on one side of a building with a hallway connecting them uh outside of them and everyone is bottlenecked like there's at one point i don't know like six to eight people in this one little mm -hmm. like 20 by 10 hallway it's just there's no good way to make that work um and there's also there was no reason for people to be moving to where they were like one of the cool scenes is when um, like it would have been super rad if like that mirror was like down in a church or something and they had like sure like a way bigger space and like more interesting set to work with or, and or stuff how right how about the mirror how about the priest is hiding behind the full-length mirror and so he's on the mm. other side while she while the demon Ooh, is reaching into been, it like there's all sorts of really super cool. cool ways he could have done this and i i just get the feeling that it was a rush job by the end of the production and of course who knows they probably you know they might not have filmed in sequence although if they drained a lot of equipment of uh hydraulic fluid i'm sure that was a later scene um I, I, sorry i i was gonna say just um going back to your point of john carpenter saying hey this is the one film where i really got my my vision unclouded you know maybe that's the problem you know whenever whenever you see a film that <laughs> Um, you look in like, oh, the director is person A. Oh, the writer is person A. Oh, the so-and-so is person A. Like, the more often their name appears in the credits, the worse the movie's going to be, most likely. Well, and I mean, so, and he's made he's made some winners and yeah. some clunkers. Um, Halloween, and I think it gets to the point, too, when you're constrained so much, you can make something great. Like, Halloween, I... I think Halloween is a phenomenal movie and one and one of the more phenomenal series. Although, you know, when you go on as long as it does, there's some it's a real rough one. Um, but and speaking of which, uh, the the most recent Halloween that is a, a retcon of everything past the first movie, phenomenal. Can't wait for Halloween Kills uh, next year. It's going to be great. But this is one of those cases where I agree with you. I think he maybe. He, he was so tied to certain things that the story doesn't just suffer, it's non-existent. The visuals are what's important here. We stare at them a long time. The opening credit sequence is over 10 minutes long. Um, it, it, to its credit, it's interspliced with some world building and character introduction, but very little. So it's like, you're, you're watching a fair amount of footage between the credits, but I'm not getting a lot of plot until the very end, you know, the very beginning when the, the priest dies and Donald Pleasance gets the key, that's important. Uh, seeing Victor Wong as, as the professor, that's important. And then everything else in there is completely unimportant uh, until well after the credits. Um, so this is, and this is a much loved film by a lot of horror buffs. Uh, I don't, I think that part of the problem in looking back in retrospect is I think that the thing 
uh, remake that John Carpenter did is a much stronger film and In the Mouth of Madness is also a much stronger film. So when you have a slow paced film that doesn't have much plot and doesn't have a very sensical plot, it's uh, or a sensical ending, it's, uh, it's, it's gonna be hard to compete with that. Um, it's sort of think of Dario Argento's Inferno uh, where in his witch's trilogy, you know, you have Suspiria, which was his kind of early opus. And then you have Inferno uh, and then you have, uh, what's the final one, Lady of Tears. Uh, it's like, it doesn't matter if you hate the last one or love the last one, everyone is kind of the same on the middle one, Inferno. It's interesting, you know? Um, so I think it's, it's got that middle child syndrome. And uh, if you're not Empire Strikes Back, you're just a sequel, um, is, is, is the way a lot of people see it. And I think this one suffers from that. I will say that there is a cool cameo by Alice Cooper uh, as the head. Uh, basically, one of the weird things that happens as they're all sequestered in this building is that homeless people, um, they imply they're schizophrenic people as opposed to just people who don't have homes. Um, I'm sure that somebody is offended by this in this day and age, which I can understand. Um, but they, they gather and sort of act like zombies outside of the building and they end up killing a couple of the uh, people as they leave later. Um, but Alice Cooper has a featured cameo where he stabs the first victim of the movie with like a, a half of a bicycle. And that's actually, I guess, a prop that he used in some of his stage shows. Um, and he wasn't actually originally in, gonna be in the film. His manager was producing the film. And so he, uh, and he had met John Carpenter before. And he's like, hey, can I come watch some of the special effects? Cause Alice Cooper, he's a stage performer that loves effects. He, they're like, yeah, sure. And he came on and he basically hung out so much that I guess Carpenter was like, you know, I want you in this movie. Um, so it's kind of a neat thing. And Alice Cooper fans, uh, he has a song called Prince of Darkness that plays in there for a little bit. Uh, That's a nice thing to see. Uh, and he's, he's a good actor and he has a very recognizable face, very long face. Um, when you put some ghoul makeup on him, he's, he, he fits right in. So let's wrap this one up. I'm going to, I'm going to start uh, on this one. Uh, I'm going to, I would recommend Prince of Darkness to anyone that has patience for slow pacing and likes the higher end budget 80s, 90s supernatural movies, because there's a certain flavor to this kind of late 80s, uh, early 90s supernatural movie. Um, it fits right in with things like Poltergeist um, and other things where they're easily accessible. Anybody can watch it and be like, oh, this is a fairly well-made film from a technical standpoint. I'm going to be able to watch this movie. Whereas a lot of the other 80s and 90s stuff that maybe people aren't interested in uh, in the mainstream are shot on video, real rough, bad audio, no effects, no name actors, all that stuff. If you can't get into that, um, this is going to be an interesting one. And it's going to prompt some discussion, especially if you come from a, a, a Christian religious household. Go ahead, um, watch it. And, uh, and bring your engineer uncle so they can complain about all the pseudoscience. Um, but yeah, I, and, and from a personal note, I enjoyed this movie. Um, I was hoping for a little more. I hadn't seen this movie for I don't know how long, maybe 20 years. And so it was, I had different memories of it. And when I watched it again, I didn't find that it was as enticing as it originally was, but worth a watch, especially if you're a John Carpenter or a Donald Pleasance fan, although Donald Pleasance's role is really sadly minimized. Mandy, who would you recommend Prince of Darkness to and why? Oh, this is a hard one to recommend because uh, 
like, I don't know, like I said, kind of dialing it in this week, and I felt like I didn't pay attention enough to understand what was going on, but, like, obviously, like, it just, there wasn't a lot to understand, so, uh, it's just, um, it wasn't all there, I agree with Nate, like, the production value is part of a reason to watch it, like, it is, it does look nice, um, I thought that it actually flowed pretty well, even though, like, the substance wasn't quite there, um, it is a slower paced film. Um, I liked, I enjoyed the um, period costumes, which were they were probably like modern, very large, but like it was a nice return to like the 80s, a very true to the 80s look. Um, and yeah, the ensemble cast was interesting. So I don't know, like a weird one, but we review a lot of weird films. So <laughs> kind of like on brand for us. Uh, but yeah, hard to recommend it to like any specific group of people. All right, fair enough. Greg, who would you recommend Prince of Darkness to and why? Um, I mean, if push came to shove, um, if you're a John Carpenter fan, like a diehard fan, hey, here's one more in its mm -hmm. wheelhouse. Um, but I'll do my usual thing of, I would say, if you haven't seen The Thing, just do that instead, or just skip this one and do In the Mouth of Madness, like you had said earlier, Nate. Um, if you hate John Carpenter, but you kind of like the idea of like a religious or pseudo-religious horror film, um, 2015's The Lazarus Effect, I'd say do that one instead. A um, in that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I liked it well enough, but the whole time I, I felt like it didn't go far enough and I, I wanted something else. And one thing else to mention again, or in addition, that I was watching for is I'm a huge Clive Barker fan, both his, especially his novels and short stories, but also uh, his movies and the adaptations. And this felt like a Clive Barker light. Like it didn't yeah. get there. It doesn't have that depth of like sort of moral ambiguity and, and really dark um, pseudo mythology. Or, it doesn't really have that. It wants that. And so it starts to scratch, but it's sort of like an entry level Clive Barker uh, is maybe what I would call it. So, but again, uh, maybe worth a watch. Take that into account. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to move on to Deathline, a.k.a. Raw Meat. All right, I know what you're thinking. I don't have a lot of money, Nate. It's still COVID times. Don't ask me for money. Okay, I promise I will not ask you for free money. What I will do is offer you awesome swag from Colton Classic Podcast and the Colton Classic Podcast family if you join our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash Colton Classic Podcast. You can join for a dollar a month and get exclusive videos of our episodes as well as extra content, or you can donate $5 and get an autographed art collector's card and some occasional other swag by the mail every month. Or if you really want to support us, you can do $10 a month and be a full drinker of the Colton Classic Podcast Kool-Aid. You get the card, the free content, you get a zine every single month from Colton Classic Podcast and our family. And you usually get some extra stuff every month too. These are really great benefits. Uh, they're, they're creative. You'll like them, I promise. And it's totally worth it because, well, we love you and we need you. And we want to keep bringing you interesting conversations about films that you love and some that you don't even know about. Also want to give a shout out to a person who sent us some awesome stuff on swag for us. It is Uncle Mike's Pop Culture Market. That is Uncle Mike's Pop Culture Market. This was a cool collection of stuff that Uncle Mike sells. Uh, it's an all assortment of things from Goosebumps books to Creeps magazine to I'm looking at some of them right now. 
awesome action figures, VHS, DVDs, Blu-ray, all sorts of cool stuff. You never know what you're gonna find from Uncle Mike's Pop Culture Market. How do you find Uncle Mike's Pop Culture Market? Go to Instagram and go to at uncle underscore Mike's underscore pop culture underscore market. That's Uncle Mike's Pop Culture Market with underscores between the words pop culture is one word. Uh, totally worth it. Great person to deal with. Super appreciate the swag sent to Colton Classic. And if you guys want to shout out and have something that you want people to know, either anything you want, action figures, movies, whatever the case is, reach out to us at coltonclassicpodcast at gmail.com and we will see if we can help you out and give something cool to you guys, fiends of the pod. Thanks so much. And we are back and we are going to talk now about the second film in this week's Pleasance episode, Raw Meat from 1972. So this is one that is much less known in the States uh, than Prince of Darkness and probably in the UK. It's not totally unknown. It's been released in the 2000s, I think two or three times uh, on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, but actually, I'm not even sure about the Blu-ray, but it's been released uh, this decade. And I'm going to say this. It is an odd duck of a film. Uh, it's, it's a horror film, but it really feels almost more like two films stuck together. It's like part... Um, sort of mutant cannibal film uh, and part sort of cozy de uh, British detective film. Um, and in it, there is a, just to get right to the chase, in a, a never finished or rather a collapsed section of the London Tube, um, the late generations of miners who were trapped there and procreated over a couple of, I think three generations uh, are uh, snagging people from the tube system and eating them. And we arrive on the scene when a prominent government official uh, is snagged and disappears. And uh, he's, of course, been eaten. And turns out the mutants, there's only one left. We actually enter as his pregnant partner dies. So we have this sort of post-verbal verbal mutant character who is humanish in the in the it's not the sewers but it feels like the sewers to us us uh united states folk um who is sort of lashing out uh because he's the last one of his kind and in the middle of it we have donald pleasance as inspector calhoun and his partner detective sergeant rogers played by norman rossington both of course well-known uh, british folk in the acting world and then we also have uh, Sharon Gurney as Patricia Wilson and David Ladd as Alex Campbell, the American student uh, who is uh, Sharon Gurney's character's boyfriend. They are there to sort of be the first ones to witness uh, a guy disappearing. They don't actually see him taken, um, but then uh, she gets taken near the end. The reason it's hard to sort of put this in words is because this is another film, sort of like Prince of Darkness, where it really, the plot doesn't move along because of actions of the characters. It actually just moves along sort of by random chance. Um, I don't know if you guys felt the same way because uh, it seems like Detective Calhoun is a good detective, Donald Pleasant's character. He's a funny detective. Um, he also speaks, everyone speaks in such a natural British cadence in this movie because they're all British except for uh, David Ladd that I had trouble understanding some of their lines. Um, 
it's definitely probably just my American ears. But what I did understand uh, was pretty good dialogue and some funny stuff, uh, which is a weird juxtaposition with the really gruesome, depressing life that the mutant is leading. And I guess my point was, is I expected the detectives to actually detect something and solve the case, but they don't. What actually happens is uh, the girlfriend, Sharon Gurney's character, gets abducted by this mutant to be a meal, and then he decides a mate. Uh, and the, David Laz, the boyfriend, goes to Donald Pleasance, and he's like, yeah, we'll get to it tomorrow, because he's hungover. And so David Ladd goes in the tube and finds her himself. And then, of course, Donald Pleasance is like, oh, shit, like, he's going down there. We're going to go. And so then they, they wind up there uh, at the same time as David Ladd rescues his girlfriend and beats up the mutant. But no one, no one resolved the plot through wit or anything. It's not really a detective story in that way. It just happens to be co-starring, I guess, a detective character, right? Right, so you said it like kind of moved along by like random chance. I felt it like moved along by like bureaucratic, like oh, that is true. You know, like um, like outcomes. Like it just like it like was turning the crank of bureaucracy almost. It was super slow. Yeah. People were following like their um, like status quo kind of of and it. It just like oh stuff kind of eventually happened and people were bumbling along and like push you know I don't know pushing the paperwork and, and like like uh, you know people were living their lives and stuff randomly worked out yeah, to turn into a movie. Kind of, it's kind of true because the bureaucracy is an interesting point because we get it all the way throughout the film right like in fact let's listen to this clip this is the first time the first scene Donald Pleasance is in he's arrived at his office um, and he sits down at his desk and this this scene opens with him yelling Marshall which is his um, his secretary. Sure. Coming, sir. Go on, Rogers. Uh, there's a report of a funny incident at Russell Square tube station. Yes, sir? Tea. Oh, sorry, sir. I had to get some more tea bags. Tea bags? You've been using tea bags? Uh, they're standard issue now, sir. Ah, I've been blaming the Indians. But do you still want some, sir? Yes, of course I want some. I love this scene because, of course, it's like quintessentially British that he's complaining about not using loose leaf tea. But then also, like later on, when he's hung over and he's talking to David Ladd's character, um, and he's like, "You gotta help me get her." And he's like, "We will go as soon as it opens in the morning and and check out whatever's there." And like he's as he's talking, he's stirring his tea. And then he just lifts the tea bag out in a spoon. And he's like, as he finishes his sentence, the guy turns around and leaves and he just flings the tea bag behind him against the wall. And I'm like, put this back in. Like, it's just this, the character, like I actually would have really enjoyed seeing Donald Pleasance's and Norman Rossington's characters in a sort of mid-century Sherlock Holmes style film. Um, I would have liked seeing them uh, just play out their role and and find like a murder or something like that because this just was this to me felt like this was not the case for them this was this was something this was uh i don't even know this was a true bizarreness but getting back to your was that like what was that i'm oh, sorry what was the superhero movie where it's like the superheroes on their day off you don't see them doing any superhero stuff like was not the day to film the movie but i can't remember no mystery men but anyway, that's kind of what it was like. These were like, it was not their case, like you said. 
Yeah, like it just it felt like a weird like it felt like two two scripts were hammered together. And this film, by the way, um, I mean, especially in the seventies, uh, we had with video nasties and things. The British government was pretty heavy handed on censorship, so um, this film was cut down heavily. We watched the full version, uh, which has a tiny bit of nudity and pretty great gore effects uh, in this film. Practical effects. We see a lot of the mutants like basically meat room where he just like throws the bodies. They actually drink blood. And actually the logic of the script I found pretty good because I was like, why is he like, why are there bodies in there? If they were eating people, they wouldn't waste so much. And then we learn that they have a deficiency um, and essentially it would make them crave iron. So they, mm -hmm. the drinking blood starts to make sense. Um, and, uh, and then, and there's little things like that throughout that kind of um, are interesting things. And the police do learn things after um, the mutants, uh, they call him the man, after his, his uh, partner dies, he goes on a little rampage and attacks three men in the tube. And like, they learn other things about him genetically because he gets hit and his blood as well. So it's, there are interesting things in there, but again, they don't really have much to do with the plot because we kind of understand already what's happening. Um, but the bureaucracy thing you mentioned, I like that, which I hadn't really thought of. It runs through the whole thing all the way from the tea bags being standard issue to um, when they're trying to, they go and they break in essentially to um, the, the first victim uh, who is working for some sort of government defense. Uh, when they break into his apartment, we get a cameo from Christopher Lee, which was an odd little thing. Uh, who who tells him to get lost, uh, and and so they sort of then they go get drunk because they're essentially off the case until the monster attacks those three other people, which are normal people, and all of a sudden he can go mess with the case because so it is interesting. The bureaucracy really does stop them midway through, which I hadn't thought of. Um, we also I want to talk a little about this Christopher Lee scene because of course Christopher Lee most famous for playing Dracula among other roles in Hammer films. Uh, Dracula movies, um, as well as Count Dooku in the Star Wars prequels, uh, and so many other things. Um, he actually, well, let's listen to this clip. This is um, Donald Pleasance and uh, Norman Rossing's character, the sergeant, in this uh, dead guy's apartment, even though they haven't found the body. And uh, all of a sudden, Christopher Lee's character, who's an MI, MI5 uh, operative, shows up. Someone is reported missing in my manner. That's my business. Your dainty little footsteps are echoing in places where one is well advised to tread lightly. Are you threatening me? You're very busy. Beyond even your well-known working class virility. Why don't you go back to planting pot on people? <laughs> this was an interesting scene, especially for a cameo, because in that pause, it's because Donald Pleasance leaned forward and mouths fuck you to him, which was weird in this kind of movie because it does, it feels like a detective cozy in most of it. Um, so to have that expletive in there and then to have Christopher Lee tell the off, uh, the police officer to just go back to planting pot. That was a uh, sort of a, it felt like a rule breaking scene for British cinema at the time. I mean, there were, of course, other British films who really pushed the envelope, but that was unusual. Um, so that was an interesting scene. Also, the scene is visually bizarre um, because they're clearly not being shot at the same time. It's literally um, split down the middle shot. So we get 
um, Donald Pleasance and Norman Rossington uh, to one end of the screen, and then you flip and you have Christopher Lee in the other. Um, I assumed it was because they couldn't film on the same days, uh, but I looked it up, apparently that's not true. The actual issue is that uh, the director of this movie, who uh, is, is Gary Sherman, he also did 1981's Dead and Buried, which I think is a more successful film on the whole. Um, he didn't want to have to deal with the logistics, especially, it makes sense, in, that, in an actual apartment, which was small, of filming the height difference, because Christopher Lee was 6'5", and Donald Pleasance is only, or was only 5'6". So that's, you know, a pretty big difference. It's essentially a foot difference. And filming them, I think it could have been done interesting because it is, I mean, that's a very striking image, right? Um, but he didn't want them to seem that off par. I guess he didn't want mm. that sort of intimidation physically as well as verbally. Um, interesting choice. I probably would have done it. But it looks like the kind of thing when they filmed them in two separate occasions but it isn't. And you can see that it isn't actually when uh, uh, Donald Pleasance and his partner's character leave the apartment because we see Chris, who an actual Christopher Lee sitting down in the chair, um, which then makes sense. Cause I'm just like, that's a pretty good lookalike. If it's not Christopher Lee, well, it is actually Christopher Lee. So they were actually there. The other interesting thing about that is that Christopher Lee was originally in line for Dr. Loomis in Halloween and turned it down and Donald Pleasance got it. And Christopher Lee apparently regretted it, um, but he really liked Donald Pleasance's work and he wanted to be in a uh, role with Pleasance, which is interesting because now that I think about it, that's in reverse because this film is pre-Halloween, which was I think 1978. So uh, that little tidbit can't be 100% factual that I found. Um, Donald Pleasance is of course working before this. So it's very likely that Christopher Lee did want to work with him, but it wouldn't have been because of Halloween, so interesting that that if, if you've heard that from me or somebody else it's not totally correct so we i've talked about some of the things i like about this movie um but some other problems there's the, the elephant in the room is this movie is really really slow um i think in a similar way to prince of darkness this week we had two really dragging films um this movie is two separate films crammed together, as I said, and neither of them are quick moving. Um, I say neither of them are good either. I, you know, <laughs> I, personally, I actually did like it. Here's, here's what I'll say about the horror part. I actually felt for the man character, the mutant, uh, when because we watch him, essentially, we watch him killing the first victim and draining the blood over his his we'll call her the bride the woman's mouth as she's clearly sick during childbirth and um and when she dies i mean he sobs and he's he he doesn't speak english completely so he's just sobbing and i was like this is to me that touched home and then he ends up putting her in the essentially the family plot which is the other room of their apartment chambers which is just all the bodies from three generations and each of them has some like little keepsake that he places on them I thought it was a very sort of weird clan of the cave bear mutant post-apocalyptic vibe feeling. And I liked that. And I like the set. It's actually, a, it's not a, in the, in the film, it's a uh, closed off station that was, you know, people were left to die, which is why MI5 doesn't want them to go in there because it's sort of a black mark on their record, apparently. Um, but it's actually just an unfinished station. The station was never finished. And now it's used, I don't know if it's still present, but it was used to film movies and made way more money than the station ever could have made uh, as an active station. Um, but it's a cool set. 
and it, it works really well. And I like those scenes, but they take place almost entirely separate of the rest of the movie. The only difference, I mean, the only time they combine is near the end when we get this really freaky, ugly scene where um, uh, uh, Sharon Gurney's character finally escapes the maniac um, and he communicates with her. The only thing he says is like a really muffled version of mind the doors because that's the only thing that the train attendants say audibly over the speakers the whole time in the tube, which is an interesting touch. Um, she rebuffs him and he's being really very gentle. And then it's like he, he just breaks it and he tries to rape her. And it was a it was a choice that I don't know, I kind of you wondered if it was coming, but I'm like, that seems like a very weird choice for that mutant character after he'd not done that. Like I don't know. I just, I felt like it was a weird, for a character that doesn't speak in, in intelligible words, I felt that was a weird turn for him to do because he could have raped her back at his pad, essentially, uh, if that's his character. Yet he seemed very attached to his bride who was pregnant. Mm -hmm. So grooming her, I understand, to be his bride, that's clearly his intent, but then just not being able to take it, like, it makes you it changes it from being like this guy lived in a world where his family were the only people that mattered. And now it turns out, Oh, he's just a rapist. And who knows that other, that other mutant could have just been one of his victims. We don't know. And it seemed like a really, it seems too late in the game to turn what little understanding of that character we had on its head. And I guess I just, I had, I had no sympathy for the mutant in, in, in the, um, the tube. Um, when when he when his um the woman dies and he has that kind of you know meltdown scene i thought i thought of more of tommy Wiseau at the end of the room kind of walking around kind of haphazardly pushing stuff off the shelves and you know it's it's like five minutes of this guy in this tube like just yelling and then kind of hitting things haphazardly and not really not like just directionless and i think i just kind of my my suspension of disbelief snapped as soon as we kind of saw like you said he just this kind of caveman rapist thing and like what they they he made like maybe he grew up there maybe and like his parents were the survivors of this cave-in but like what they they raised him that like oh like the sun like is is dangerous to us and we don't speak and i just I couldn't follow it, and I and I and I didn't want to. Well, and I think, and that's the thing you didn't want to, because I because I get that, because it is yeah. slow, and it's because the logic, and maybe that's it. Is I, I just I didn't give the movie a chance, and I'll I'll put that on me, but I don't think the movie hard. I mean, it's hard to <laughs> make it through. Yeah, I'm more on, I'm more on Greg's side. I'm like, it didn't serve it up to me in an easy easy manner. I needed like some slow balls over the middle of the plate this week, and like. That's yeah. not really what I got with either of these explaining themselves. So, it, well, yeah. Well, explain it at all, right? Right. Yeah. The way we understand <laughs> the, the plight of these people is little bits that people tell the detective, but the people telling the detective don't know about this mutant, so they don't make any right. connections. And so the, the mm -hmm. nothing is given to the audience because essentially I feel the logic kind of checks out and it kind of surprised me that it did, but I had, I had to think about it. Like, and I will say this, the movie has enough slow parts that I had time to think about it. Um, 
it was because the idea is it's about a hundred years or so, so that's probably three generations. So okay, and I can I can buy that a little more, but yeah. still, well, you like three generations, and then you're like, well, why do they just because they can't leave, right? Because that was the whole point is they were caved in. I'm like, oh wait, okay, they didn't kill people until later generations because they've caught this plague and they named the plague and they talk about it that makes them desire the blood blood essentially iron uh until later generations so the first generation didn't have it maybe the second had it probably not because it doesn't look like it's doing them any favors it looks like it's killing them um mm -hmm. and then you get this one so it could be that it's just this final uh last two we or however many were of this final generation that finally were able to claw their way out of this little, because there's one little slit in the cave-in where they can crawl out of. Um, and then they killed for food and blood and whatever. The, the problem with that is that mm, rats have blood too. And we know that he kills and probably eats rats because we watch him do it when they're attacking, um, uh, which is weird. They're not attacking uh, Sharon Gurney's character, they're rats. Um, they're, they're, they're crawling around her if, if this were a true story. Um, so it's an interesting, I found that the logic checked out, but again, that's a lot to ask of the audience when there's no impetus carrying the, the plot, you know, and carrying your attention from the plot. Like, like I said, nothing happens because of the skill or adeptness right. of any character. Um, the only character that has a clear, like, routine or mode of action is the mutant. Because essentially, he loses the only other person he knows. He, in a fit of rage, attacks and kills some people. And then he has nothing. He spends time, what? And then he, we see him get water and then break down crying again. And then he goes out to, to kill and presumably get someone for blood. And he finds the woman. And he takes her back. And you know the formula that goes on in his head. Like, woman, oh, this is a new family, whatever. So I understand him through this film. But Donald Pleasance and the police are slow. And they don't really... They don't have anything to go on. They were that. just literally playing the police. Like, that felt very accurate. Also, we <laughs> never see them go. Yeah, we never see them actually go to the tube until the very end. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're, you're trying to find clues. But in the movies, we always, of course, see, usually, um, like, oh, the detective goes down himself and looks at the mm -hmm. scene. In this, it almost feels a little more realistic, where he's like, he didn't even go to the scene. He, asks he argues over tea. Right, and then he asks mm -hmm. about the, and then he has the police officer who is stationed there come up. If you really wanted it, wouldn't you have gone there? Um, and there's some other things involved in that. Like, there's a lot of red herrings for the police that we know aren't true, which is a weird thing, because we know that this uh, first victim who worked for the government uh, was not killed because he was selling secrets or anything clandestine like that. He was killed because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time by an evil mutant. And they're trying to figure out why he's taking public transport when he's a high profile figure. And it's because in the opening scene, we see that he's visiting sex clubs. So mm -hmm. like, like strip clubs and whatever. So it's just these random things occur to make it look like these other things. But we as the audience already know that's not the case. So it's weird to make us watch the detectives go through these loop, you know, these, these hoops. Um, whereas I feel like if you restructured, because I don't think the dialogue is particularly terrible, I actually think it's fairly strong, and you had a pretty solid cast for a movie that is fairly not known, um, especially a Christopher Lee cameo should get you on a lot of shelves in the collecting community, um, but it's just, 
I don't, I don't, like you could have restructured it. This could have been an actual mystery. Um, instead, it's not a mystery. We already know the, we already know exactly what's happening pretty much. We get a little more details that we don't really need, like the diseases and stuff. Um, but it's kind of anticlimactic to get there when you know from the very beginning what the hell is happening. You know, I, I think it kind of goes back to something you said about Prince of Darkness. And since these are Donald Pleasant's films, both of them, it feels like this movie, I mean, this movie especially to me, didn't use what it had. You have Christopher Lee, you have Donald Pleasance. You have this really smart setup of something's happening on the tube and people are disappearing. And that's kind of... Mm a very primal fear of like taking public transportation, something that you have no choice in and the police are interested and, you know, watching this couple get accused of a murder that they're like, we tried to report like a crime. Like why, like, why are you coming at Mm -hmm. us? And just kind of the terror of that, but we're folk, um, you know, um, maybe to to channel a little bit of Jeff, I think the rewrite would be, don't show me anything about the mutant. Mm -hmm. I don't want to know anything about them. And then that way, when we kind of see, like, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out maybe it's the serial killer, whatever. And then all of a sudden this crazed mutant comes out and grabs this woman. And we find out that like, oh, there was like this cave in and like, they've been living there. And it's like these. I would have loved to have heard like the, the neighborhood rumors because mm-hmm. you know that there would have been like some alligator in the sewer kind of story oh, yeah. like right like i would have loved to see the police like canvassing the neighborhood and like collecting these stories a little bit at a time that like little be, details and like building sense, it up right like everything you're right everything is in place um and that would have been really fat that would have been fantastic in fact that would be a great remake of some kind but again when you already know the premise, you're like, ah, you, you sapped everything from me in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I actually, so the original film title is Deathline. Um, uh, Which it, is a much better title. It is a better title. Raw Meat is just clearly trying to get, um, you know, it's trying to be exploitative to get some more re- viewers, which, I mean, I understand. And we'll say again, there's a lot of gore effects that are pretty good that are weirdly used subtly. Like when we see the, the, the dwelling of the mutant, like there's disgusting bones and everything. Like it's, it's, it's well done. Um, we also get in the, which they cut in the original release, um, uh, uh, the, the, the attempted rape scene, we see um, uh, Sharon Gurney's breast, which was an issue for the censors at the time. And honestly, I mean, she, she's done nudity in other scenes that she, or other films she's been in. She's actually a great actress. I think she's done some really good work, um, especially in the horror genre, but it just seemed unnecessary. I mean, cause it's not, cause it's too real. The, the, the feel of the mutant scenes to me is too real to be titillating. It's, it's not like, it's not schlocky mm-hmm. enough for it to be like, oh yeah, they're being attacked, but clearly this is a movie, like, and there's breasts, like, ha, you know, like, it's it's too much for that, um, it's too real, and so for them to something that already felt weirdly inappropriate in this setup, um, like, it would have been actually, like you're saying, Mandy, if you'd set it up that way, where, mm-hmm. you know, the police are really trying to find what's happening, and Greg, you said, it, it, if you actually had the mutant, maybe he kills people, and then when they actually find him, he's not he's actually not even threatening, right? Like it's a survival situation. Like it's more, like it just could have been so much more. And we do get this weird little thing at the end of this movie where um, 
David Ladd's character has beat up, has saved his girlfriend. He's beat up the mutant. The mutant's dragging himself back to his home. And he goes and he lays uh, next to the corpse of his fallen bride, you know, the woman. Um, and the police go in and find him. And Donald Pleasance is like, all right, you stay here. We're going to go get whatever else we need the rest of the crew to come in here and help sort this out. And then as after everyone's walked towards the camera in this long scene when the credits are starting, um, and Donald Pleasance and the rest are out of view, we're still staring down the same tube station, we hear the monster scream. And I mean, you're like, is it still alive? Like, is he then going to attack because there's only one officer in there or such like that? Like, it was an interesting little thing that in a movie like, like a Halloween or something, a little extra spook like that could have been effective. In this one, it's just more problematic because I was already struggling with the actual conclusion of the film as a whole. Um, I think we can we can wrap this one up. I mean, again, there's neat things in this film and everything is set to succeed. And we should say too, I think this has something to do with it potentially. The director of this film, as I said, he's not unknown. Um, he, he did Dead and Buried, which is uh, a great film. Uh, Gary Sherman is his name. He also, he had the story for this, but he didn't apparently write the screenplay. The screenplay was actually written by Siri Jones, who wrote a few television shows in Britain, but was actually primarily an ad executive. And this was the only feature length that, uh, that, that uh, Jones wrote. And I think that I think that gels with this. I think that makes a lot of things make sense because the writing for dialogue and setup and things like that seems strong. The idea is strong, but the execution of the actual narrative, which is the most difficult part of a writer's job is what's critically lacking. And for someone to then have written the script that isn't a full-time, you know, bloody knuckle, you know, at the typewriter all day, uh, writer, that seems appropriate. That, oh, the failure is in, you had a talented amateur, not even using that as, as an insult, but you had a talented amateur tackle a complicated project when you would have been better off having a, um, an experienced hack. You know what I mean? Because an experienced hack would have understood basic narrative structure to give you something that was at least paced well and probably has a payoff at the end. Whereas someone who's an amateur but really skilled at writing, it gives you scene, dialogues and scenes that make sense and are coherent, but the whole package doesn't fit right. And so it's, it's unsatisfying at the end. So that was my take on that one, uh, on, on, on this raw meat, AKA Deathline. Kind of a islanded Dr. Moreau scenario where you just have someone that can't quite juggle all the balls. Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and I, it would have been, it would have been nice to have somebody come in and do another pass through this script, someone else, um, and probably could have really worked this into shape. Uh, this is one of those movies too, that as we've talked about, because of the pacing, this is not a long film. It's an hour and 27 minutes. It feels like two hours. Yeah, um, and, for sure. And that's a rough one. But wrapping it up here today for this episode, I'm gonna start with you, Mandy. Mandy, who would you recommend Deathline to and why? Ugh, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to watch a movie about, I'll steal Greg's thunder because he always recommends different movies. If you want to watch a movie about a mutant living in the abandoned tube station, watch me for Vendetta. Like it. Yeah. It's that guy in the base. He's doing the things. It's mysterious. 
Um, but also the, um, the cops are doing the thing like I, I said I would have liked to see more. There's a more organic unfolding curiosity, but also the bureaucracy um, that they're working with in that and it had just like a much better, and it's British. So That's interesting. I hadn't made that parallel, but of course that is, there is also a, a woman abduction and it's, there, there are many points to, to duplicate on that. Mm -hmm. So interesting and uh, fascinating choice. Greg, who would you recommend Deathline 2 and why? Well, Mandy stole my thunder because I'm not going to recommend this to anyone. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna instead recommend uh, 2008's uh, Midnight Meat Train, based off a of Clive Barker short story, because it's basically the same movie. Um, Midnight Meat Train does not have a great ending, but it's a much more engaging film, and you're at least curious until the end, and it pulls you in. For sure, and it has Vinnie Jones in the lead role, and Brad yeah. Cooper's got a little role in there too. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break rank a little here. I will recommend this movie. If you like the idea of British detective films and this weird cannibal story, I think that individually they're mildly interesting. Um, together they don't work. But if, you're, if you understand going in that you're going to watch an incomplete or imperfect narrative, Give it a go. Also, if you're a Sharon Gurney fan or a David Ladd fan, they have some decent scenes. I want to I want to give a shout out. I will to the script and Sharon Gurney's character for this one point in the beginning of the film. Greg, you mentioned that uh, the boyfriend girlfriend are sort of accused of of maybe murdering this guy or something. Yeah. Um, by Donald Pleasance, and it seems like maybe he's just trying to wild them up to see if they'll give him anything if there is something. Um, but. That's, of course, like the thing we all fear, right? That's why so many in the U.S., so many crimes are unreported because, one, people are lazy and it's inconvenient and they don't think about other people. It's me on my soapbox. But, two, because we don't always trust the police system and the ability of our justice system to, to uh, prevent the just from being punished. And we get that here. Um, but in that opening scene that causes them to go to the police in the first place, um, they pass the first victim collapsed on the stairs. And there is actually time if you, like I did, painstakingly try and break down the narrative um, where it seems as though this guy was actually attacked by the mutant. And then when the couple started to come, the mutant left and he looks like he's just drunk, passed out on the stairs. And then when they leave, then the mutant drags him off. And that's why when they bring the cop back, he's not there. Uh, but when they see him on the stairs, the American, David Ladd, AKA me, uh, sees him as like, he's just drunk, let's go. Like, what are you gonna do for him? But she's like, maybe he's having a heart attack. Maybe, like, check his pockets for a diabetic. You know, maybe he, he's a diabetic. Check his pockets for um, an alert card. Because yes, people, I don't know if they still do, but at the time and other, uh, other people as well with different conditions carry alert cards in their wallets. They actually check his wallet. That was, it was nice to see a character that actually not only acknowledged someone like a real person as, as a hopefully a caring human being would but actually use that bit of like hey we should check his wallet to make sure he's not a diabetic we need to get something like that was just a touch that right away i'm like oh that's unexpected um unfortunately it really doesn't have any play with anything it just is a spot of realism in an imperfect movie but i want to give a shout out to that because i think a lot of films they don't really they look at something like that and they're like that touch of realism is too it's too much effort. The payoff's not there. And in a way they're right, 
but I do as a viewer like seeing things like that that I didn't necessarily see. Like for once, can we talk about where one of the characters has to take a dump in a zombie movie? Like, I mean, really, like I, you could do something about that because that's something that I would think about. Uh, did they I do were. that in Zombieland? They did. I, they yeah. Did. So I mean, uh, and yes. possibly Twenty Eight Days Later. I don't know if they did it in Twenty Eight Days Later. That is a great Danny Boyle film <laughs> with uh, one of my favorite characters of all time, Silly Murphy. I thought there was a scene where he goes and it's like the first time the guy kills someone or something. And goes, uh, anyway, I, I like <laughs> zombie films. These are like the things that I also am concerned about in in the zombie genre. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, though, Nate. That was that was that yeah. was a very good scene, and then mm -hmm. it just after that that right. it yeah. starts right. to. And and I will say that I'm actually going to go back to Prince of Darkness too, and just quick say I actually like the music a lot in both of these films. Yeah, they're very yeah, fair. I agree. Um, I agree. And of course, John Carpenter does his own music for most of his films, and mm -hmm. anyone who loves the iconic Halloween soundtrack that he did will also like the Prince of Darkness. In fact, the Prince of Darkness is sort of just an elevated, slightly more complex. Um, uh, version of the of Halloween's theme, so interesting there. And Rami has this really cool, trippy sort of you know UK seventies music, and the opening scene plays out like um, uh, a seventies British psychedelic music video starring an old guy walking around porn places. So it's it's interesting, but again, imperfect. I will recommend this movie, as I said, to anyone who who thinks that the combination of mutant cannibal and detective cozy film uh sounds interesting because otherwise i just think you're not going to be able to to make yourself watch it um you might be happy if you did but most likely you're just going to be bummed if you did so that's this week's episode of cult and classic podcast oh mandy's got a point i remembered that superhero movie i was thinking of it was called the specials the specials like super awkward i vaguely group remember of... that that uh, but yeah i've not seen it no we'll have to check that yeah out. Yeah, it was weird, but it was like, yeah, like they're weird off, not quite getting things together, kind of. Oh, James okay. Gunn film? Yeah. Okay. Gunn film, yeah, that's right. Very, very much like these poor detectives were having like that day. <laughs> James Gunn, by the way, uh, if you're out there, and I know you are, please uh, join us. I would absolutely love to pick your brain from your trauma days all the way to your Suicide Squad and Guardians uh, success, which is absolutely well-deserved. Glad you're back where you belong. To play us out, as always, is the Chud with All About Evil. And as always, the clips we use are for review purposes only and are uh, property of the copyright holders. And I want to say to you guys, again, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Colton Classic Podcast, where you can get cool swag like zines, buttons, trading cards that are autographed to the artist and custom for Colton Classic Podcast. Super great stuff. Also check out our updated website at www.coltonclassicpodcast.com. Thank you so much, and we love you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me. But what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.